Today we are discussing the paper published by Daniel Langer and his team. The senior author of this article was Dr. Dennis O'Donnell. And the title of this article is Inspiratory Muscle Training Reduces Diaphragm Activation and Dyspnea During Exercise in COPD. I am Dr. Esther Barreiro. I was the associate editor who handled the peer review of this article and I will moderate this discussion. And today we have the author, Daniel Langer, and he is going to tell us a lot of things about this paper. And we also have one of the best reviewers of this article, who is Professor Darlene Reed, and she is going also to participate in this discussion with us. Would you like to make a comment on the main findings of this study? Daniel, why might the training be helpful? Why might specifically inspiratory muscle training be helpful during ventilation, during exercise for people with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease? Specifically in this population of patients with dynamic hyperinflation and also reduced resting inspiratory muscle function, we specifically selected patients who had weak respiratory muscles to start with. In patients who dynamically hyperinflate during exercise, they will have a further functional weakening of their respiratory muscles during exercise due to the acutely shortened position that they have to operate in. And at the same time, also due to the dynamic hyperinflation, they have to operate against higher elastic loading due to the intrinsic positive and expiratory pressure that remains at the end of expiration. And both these factors cause a further disturbance in load capacity balance in the respiratory muscles, which is probably related to the acute increase in sensation of dyspnea once these patients participate in exercise and exercise ventilation hyperpnea. And the purpose of the respiratory muscle training is to increase increase the capacity of the respiratory muscles so they are able to generate higher pressures and also develop a larger muscle power. Also, especially at these shorter lengths, the training specifically targets also the muscles at these shorter operating lengths. So we hope that by doing this, we can prepare the muscles better for the tasks that they have to execute during exercise breathing. I wondered if you could expand a little bit upon how you define in the study weakness of the inspiratory muscles, because I think that value has been debated for a while. So what was your definition of weakness of inspiratory muscle function in these COPD patients? Well, that's of course a big item for discussion because in contrast pulmonary function tests, there is not a clear cutoff in terms of maximal inspiratory pressures as to what value would define a clear cutoff from these are weak patients and these are strong patients. So we took a more practical approach and eventually we ended up with the study to include patients who had a PI max below 70 centimeters and for that we took a measure taken at FRC. Well, you could debate as to whether that really reflects severe weakness. It's definitely reduced in comparison to population-based reference values, at least for most subjects that are included. And I also believe that it should always be regarded also in relation to the load that can be placed upon the muscle. So, I mean, the capacity will not say everything. It's also the load in terms of amount of ventilation and so on that can be reached during exercise that the muscles can be stressed with that will eventually determine if load and capacity can get out of balance during exercise. And of course, also the acute 
weakening that will develop on top of that weakness that is measured during a static maneuver at a fixed lung volume, FRC. But of course, during exercise, they will move up to higher inspiratory volumes, which will reduce pressure generating capacity. You'd alluded to the flow resistive loading that you decided to use as a training stimulus in this study. And can you speak to why you chose flow resistive loading, the benefits for COPD patients, and perhaps contrast that with threshold loading, why you didn't go ahead with threshold loading for normal cabinet hyperpnea? Well, I will mostly stick to the comparison between the mechanical threshold loading and the flow resistive loading because we personally we have not so much experience with using isocapnic hyperpnea in this population which might also be a useful stimulus but I wouldn't be able to judge it because I never really used it in practice but we have used for a long time before we started using this flow resistive loading approach that we are using now in the in this study and we, that we have used in the last couple of years we have used mechanical threshold loading and we found that the advantage of the flow resistive loading is that it resembles a training approach that is comparable to isokinetic training for the peripheral muscles in that it keeps the velocity of contraction during inspiration constant by adopting the resistance so we are able to train over the full range of motion of the muscle. In contrast with the mechanical threshold loading which resembles an isotonic training of the peripheral muscles so the load is constant which will result in a load that is not optimal for all muscle lengths and will eventually, since highest pressure generating capacity is at residual volume, result in an isometric contraction somewhere halfway into the inspiration. And of course, for peripheral muscles, it's not that big of an issue because once the weight would exceed the capacity of your muscle, you would stop the contraction and just release the load. But of course, during inspiration, what happens is that you stop inspiring and you will not get a volume reward for your inspiration by going into an isometric contraction at some point when you choose a high training intensity. So what we found when we use these high training intensities and we compared the two type of loading approaches in patients was that this flow resistive loading allowed us to use higher training resistances during the training program, which actually resulted in very similar symptoms of effort that patients were reporting during or at the end of the training sessions, while at the same time performing much more work because actually mechanical work is performed because volume is displaced during the training. And it also in head-to-head comparison resulted actually in larger improvements in respiratory muscle function that we could achieve with these type of partially supervised of controlled training schemes. So we eventually preferred that new training method above the threshold method or above working with an isotonic load for breathing training. So with this device, it would appear that you can train the inspiratory muscles over a greater range of motion or a larger range of muscle lengths, and also they're able to train at a higher intensity. Yes, that's right. A method for circumventing that, of course, would be with the isotonic load to choose a load that is more relative to a measurement that you would do of maximal inspiratory pressure at FRC or even at higher volumes and let patients start the training from that higher volume. That would also be a feasible alternative to do that. But of course, it becomes more difficult to instruct patients to properly do that, especially in a home setting. So for these partly supervised training sessions in a home setting, we preferred that method where we would always instruct them to breathe out as far as they can and then start a full vital capacity inspiration from residual volume up to total lung capacity. And I believe then that's the easiest way to instruct and control them from a distance. So with these devices, 
is you can turn over a larger range of motion, higher intensities, but also it's easier for the participants to understand that the instructions that you provide to them are simpler and they can more likely carry on a home training program more proficiently. Yes, from my experience, I would definitely confirm that. So it brings us to another issue and that's the feasibility and the compliance, the ability for participants to adhere to this. And one of the things that I've heard from other people that use this trainer is that because of the slower ramp, ramp up of load, it appears to be more readily tolerated. So you spoke to a previous study that you did where you compared the threshold loading to the flow resistive loading of the power breathe. Can you talk about how well people with COPD were able to comply with the treatment? Some of their comments, did they complain about the sensation of loading? I'm wondering if you could speak to that for a few moments. The sensation of loading, of course, also relates to the principles, the load capacity ratio. This are basically the same principles that are also underlie the sensation of respiratory effort during exercise would also determine the sensation of respiratory effort during your training sessions. So if you have to generate a high pressure during inspiration to overcome that external load, but you only get a limited volume reward for that, you would, of course, experience that effort as uh, more intense than for the same given load when you get a larger volume reward, what would happen with the other type of loading. And that's why we actually, when we compared the two types of loading head to head, we saw that for a given higher external load, the respiratory effort scores on a Borg scale that we registered were actually comparable. With regard to compliance with the training at home, another advantage of this system that we use and of several novel devices that are on the market is that they have an electronic memory that would store the sessions that are actually performed at home so we can actually for the first time, apart from fully supervising a complete program, we have an idea of the compliance of the patients with the training program instead of relying on questionnaires or training diaries that we had to use before. And what we typically see, of course, in this study, we had an exceptionally high compliance because it was a small study and it was very controlled setting. We personally saw all the subjects and it was only 20 subjects. So the compliance was very high because, of course, we wanted to look at physiological mechanisms and we had to make sure that the training was delivered properly. Otherwise, we could not study the consequences of it. But we also use it in a larger multi-center randomized controlled trial. And even in that setting, we found that both in a SHAM group and in a group that received a similar training as the one that was applied during this study, the compliance rates were around 80% with actually surprisingly low respiratory effort scores on average in the intervention group, only around 3 out of 10 on respiratory effort after the training sessions, even though we had beforehand actually targeted scores somewhere between 4 to 6, but actually we never reached these higher scores with that training method. So it really seems that we can apply quite high resistances with this training method with relatively low effort experience by the patients during the training sessions, which should increase compliance with the training. For those people not familiar with the device, can you just say a few more words about what exactly the device records during those home training sessions? Do you get the number of sessions? Do you get the number of reps during a particular session? Does it record the intensity? Do you get pressure flow tracings? Perhaps you can just expand a little bit on what the device provides you or what you can download from those home training sessions. So that's right. Yeah, the device actually registers flow and pressure 
responses during the training. So we get to know the training resistance that the session was performed at, and it counts the number of sessions. But in addition to that, we would also get an idea of the average inspired volume during the 30 breaths session. Based on volume and pressure that was generated, we get an idea of total external mechanical work that was performed during the session. And based on integrated flow and pressure responses, we also get an idea about average power of each contraction that was performed. So these are the four parameters that are actually stored and registered during every training session. So by that, we are able to get an overview of the quantity of the performed sessions, but also of the quality of the training. And also these settings help us to make decisions as to whether external loads can be increased during the training or not, because if it leads to reduction in these parameters, that probably means that the selected resistance is, is too high if it doesn't allow full volume expansion or if power of the contractions goes down. You only had 10 subjects in each group and you yes. had quite remarkable significant differences. So that speaks to consistency within your IMT group. I'm wondering if you could expand if there were any outliers, like any individuals that just didn't cope with the inspiratory muscle training or the home sessions weren't carried out as well because the averages are very high. So it looks extremely promising. Indeed, the averages were very high. We, in contrast to that larger study, we couldn't really find relationships between amount of work, for example, performed and response in terms of changes in respiratory muscle function in this study, probably because the study was too small and all the subjects were quite motivated. So we had high training compliance and good training results in terms of improvements in respiratory muscle function in most of these subjects. Still, there were responders and non-responders in terms of how these improvements, so the improvements in, in respiratory muscle function were quite consistent, mm -hmm. but not in all subjects, these improvements did translate into more functional benefits. And by functional benefits, I mean then really improvements in exercise time or symptoms during the exercise test. So these were really, in terms of that, we really had responders and non-responders. And we tried to compare the groups. Of course, it's difficult to do subgroup analysis in such a small sample, but some things that we could find were that it seemed like the main reason for exercise limitation was related to patients being responders or non-responders and that we found that the majority of patients reported dyspnea as their main exercise limiting factor mm -hmm. and most of those had moderate to large responses also to the training whereas mm -hmm. the ones that reported leg fatigue or other symptoms as their main limitation mm -hmm. to stop the exercise they seemed to be less well responding to the therapy despite of having a good compliance. Apart from that it was difficult to find factors that were really related with two response. I'm wondering if we can move on to some of the physiologic responses perhaps in the muscles and you mainly focused on diaphragm function or general parameters like the sniff and the MIP. Can you comment on why you focused on the diaphragm and if you could speculate as to some of the changes in ribcage or accessory muscles of inspiration versus diaphragm function? These are aspects that are not addressed in this paper. Indeed, we focused in terms of activation and in terms of sniff pressures. Indeed, we focused on transdiaphragmatic pressures. We focused on diaphragm activation, but we did not specifically assess activation of non-diaphragmatic inspiratory muscles, ribcage muscles, or accessory inspiratory muscles. And since we did not do that, it's not really completely clear whether the improvements that we found after the training are mainly due to improved diaphragmatic function. So um, we measured increases in 
transdiaphragmatic pressures. So there was definitely some improvement in diaphragmatic function, probably. But it might also be, and it's also very likely from the way that the training is performed, that we also provide a training stimulus to the non-diaphragmatic inspiratory muscles, and that these muscles might, to some part, take over diaphragmatic activities during exercise breathing and can somehow unload the diaphragm during exercise. But since we did not measure it, we can only speculate about it. So the fact that you had a lower transdiaphragmatic pressure at particular levels of exercise perhaps indicates that other muscles might be performing some of the work of ventilation. We did not actually have lower absolute transdiaphragmatic pressures during exercise. Okay. The, the, the pressure swings and also work that was performed that we calculated based on transdiaphragmatic pressure or esophageal pressure was quite similar. Mm -hmm. What we did find is based on what is called the ventilatory muscle recruitment index that is calculated based on the ratio between gastric and esophageal pressures at zero flow ratios. We did not really get an indication that there was a changed contribution of diaphragm to breathing. At least the differences were not statistically significant. But that recruitment index is only based upon pressure measurements. So it only gives a crude indirect estimate of contribution of different respiratory muscles to breathing during exercise. So a better way to quantify this would be to actually also measure EMG activation of the other accessory muscles during exercise. Our main finding was that actually these improvements in respiratory muscle function that we found after eight weeks of this home-based, partially supervised respiratory muscle training. These resulted in reduced activation of the diaphragm relative to maximum during exercise, while ventilation, breathing pattern, operating long volumes, so the load on the muscles did not change. And that was translated into a dyspnea relief at isotime during the exercise test. In future studies, and actually we are right now performing these studies also, we should look more into how we actually train the respiratory muscles. So how recruitment patterns of the respiratory muscles are maybe changed both during the training and during exercise breathing after this inspiratory muscle training intervention. And for that, we should indeed make assessments that are broader than only assessing the diaphragm. Since we know that in these patients with COPD, there is an important role for the accessory muscles to take over diaphragm function. And it would be interesting to know how we optimally train the respiratory muscles and what muscles do we target during the training. How about the relationship between the inspiratory muscles and the limb muscles? Well, that would, of course, be another aspect for future research. And that is more related to the metabolic requirements of the respiratory muscles that would also be interesting to study, for example, with near-infrared spectroscopy to make assessments of local muscle oxygenation or muscle blood flow, since it is known that during exercise, especially in these patients with high work of breathing and high oxygen consumption of the respiratory muscles, there might be a competition between limb muscles and respiratory muscles for limited energy supplies during exercise. And that might be another a different uh, additional mechanism that could explain the effects of inspiratory muscle training on exercise capacity. Thanks very much, Daniel. I thoroughly enjoyed reading the paper as a reviewer, and I think it shows some very important results in terms of helping us understand the benefits of inspiratory muscle trainer and recommend it for people to read if they want to further understand the benefits of inspiratory muscle training and perhaps some of the differences that we find in people with COPD versus the variable responses that are shown in healthy people following inspiratory muscle training.